Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you into Crossroads. If you're uh, joining with us today, if you're uh, visiting with us, if it's your first time, if you're online, if you've been here since day one, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, my name's Kurt, and uh, I'm just excited today to dive into uh, <clears throat> to this series that we've been in the past few weeks called So Many Questions. Uh, the, the, the purpose behind this series was we, we understand that there are some times that we face some difficult questions, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, and, and these questions can often be blockades to somebody's faith or stumbling blocks to somebody who has faith, and so we wanted to take these and address these uh, over the, the, the next uh, several weeks, and we've done this. This is week four of this series. Today, we're going to get into uh, maybe the most difficult question we're going to ask in this series. This is a question that both Christians and non-Christians alike tend to struggle with. It's a question that, uh, that, that can be both personal and global. It's a question that both Christians and non-Christians alike in a recent survey said was the number one thing they wish they could ask God face-to-face. And another survey done by Lee Strobel, who's an author, said this was the number one question that Christians and churches want to avoid being asked because they don't know how to answer the question. It's the big question. We've talked about this kind of coming up. How can a loving God allow pain and suffering and evil in the world. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago that as Brad and I were approaching this series, we were laying out for for the two of us two basic rules, two basic guidelines that we wanted to keep in our minds as we're preparing these, that we wanted to approach every one of these questions with honesty and humility as much as we possibly can. And so when we ask this question, how can a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world, the most honest and humble answer that I can give you is I don't know. I don't know. But what I'm going to try to do over the next little bit here is at least look at a couple of different perspectives and and open this up. Because again, this is not just a question, it's the question. It's the question that keeps so many people from coming to faith. A a survey done of college-age skeptics said this was the number one question, the number one reason why they couldn't believe in God, because a loving God couldn't possibly allow pain and suffering in the world. But before we dive into this today, I want to kind of set two disclaimers, if you will, kind of two, two thoughts that I want us to have in our minds as we approach this. Here's the first one. If you're currently in the middle of pain and suffering, if you've suffered a recent loss or, or you're, you're currently dealing with a, a fresh diagnosis or a grim future or a difficult financial setting or, or there's just difficulty and pain in your life right now, this is going to be a much more difficult topic to break open because there's not really a gentle way to do it. And I just want you to be aware of that. It's a much more difficult topic to discuss and talk about and try and answer if you're not currently in the midst of pain and suffering. I want us just to be aware of that. Be respectful and and be mindful. Be sensitive to those who, who may be. Second, there is no simple answer or easy way to approach this particular question. That's the second disclaimer. There's no easy answer to this. There's no shallow question. It's the question that we want to face and address. And because of that, we have to understand something. Deep and difficult questions require deep and difficult answers and deep and difficult study. And so what we're going to do in in the length of a sermon is try to dive as deep as we can, as quick as we can, and, and approach this particular question. 
Because again, this is probably the number one question that we face. And I want to tell you this too. I know many of you take notes. We, we keep a, a note sheet in the bulletin. Uh, if you didn't grab one of those and you want to, want to grab one real quick, uh, that, that's fine. There's not as much in the note sheet today as there might normally be. I don't have quite as much on the slides as I might normally have. I wanted to leave this open for you to take the notes that, that sink into you. If, you. if you don't take notes, today might be a good day to start. And I'm not saying this because I have all the answers or I've got this figured out. I certainly do not whatsoever. But I want to take this question and approach it with as much honesty and humility as we can. Because here, here's, I, I, I heard this this week and it really rattled me. When I said earlier, this is the number one question churches and Christians don't want to be asked. A mentor of mine was, was teaching on this same topic and he said in his in, in his kind of study, in his kind of research, he said he's found that more people have left the church because of the church's answers to this question than any other reason. Because in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their suffering, somebody who's, who's a Christian probably tried with the best intentions possible to answer this question for them, but didn't answer it the right way. And it came off as insensitive and it came off as trite. And it may have been a theologically accurate answer, but we want to handle this as gently as we possibly can. Because again, this is such a hard topic because we have all experienced this. We have all experienced pain and suffering and wondered where God was in the midst of it. I think all of us can relate to the psalmist in Psalm 10 when he wrote, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? I think we've all been there. Timothy Keller is a, a pastor and an author from New York. He wrote a book several years ago called The Reason for God. And in the, the book, he uh, kind of as he was researching for the book, his church was just down the street from Columbia University on New York's Upper West Side. He went down to Columbia and he asked several college students if they believed in God or not. And if not, he asked them why and, and got their answers. And he was, was doing this as an honest thing. He wasn't trying to prod and he kind of used that as the catalyst for his, his book that he wrote. But on this particular topic of, of pain and suffering, one college girl said this. There isn't, or talking about pain and suffering, she says, this isn't a philosophical issue for me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows pain and suffering, even if he does exist. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he's not trustworthy. And that's the mindset for so many people today. That's the issue for so many people. They can't understand how a God who is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving and all-wise can coexist in a world where we see murders and rapes and acts of hatred and acts of violence and terror and racism play out on a daily basis. They can't reconcile those two things together or how natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes can ravage and, and, and leave death and, and destruction in its wake or things like cancer or mental illness can, can strike seemingly innocent lives and take those lives and, and then leave pain and suffering in the wake behind it. They can't reconcile those things together. For somebody who already might struggle with the idea that God is real or not, seeing these things happen in the world today can slam the door, and they can make belief extremely difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile. But this is also a question and a topic that, that spiritually mature Christians struggle with, too. I'm sure, like, like, uh, like me, you know of somebody who has spent time in the church, they've been in the church, they've worshipped, they've sincerely followed God, 
and something has happened in their lives, and it's rattled their faith, and, and maybe they've even walked away because of it. We've seen it. This is such a personal issue. So what I want to do today is, is approach this question from two different angles and kind of get two different perspectives on it, not so that we can get a concrete answer to this question, but so that maybe we can get a little better understanding of how God can exist alongside pain and suffering all at the same time. The first thing we're going to look at is the skeptical angle of this. Okay, we're going to put on our skeptic hats, take off our church hats for just a minute, and view this as a skeptic might view this. The ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus said this, either God wants to abolish evil and he cannot, or he can and he does not want to, um, or he cannot and he does not want to. If he wants to but he cannot, he is impotent. If he can but he doesn't want to, he's wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how comes evil in the world? Now to somebody who struggles with belief in God anyway, Seeing these things happen alongside everything else in the world can be a door slammer when it comes to somebody's faith. Uh, some would uh, simply continue to believe that there isn't a God out there and that everything in the world today is the, the product of the evolutionary process, of the scientific process. And we talked much more about this a couple of weeks ago in, in the question, does science contradict faith? If, if you missed that, I would encourage you to listen to that one because we really broke that idea down. But what we kind of talked about this, that if there is an evolutionary element to it, that the evolutionary element brings in us an inherent goodness. That, that's what the skeptic would want to believe. That there is a moral compass in us that we've figured it out. We've figured out how to judge what's right and wrong or fair or unfair. And we see this being played out all across the world today. But there are a couple of issues with this, this skeptical take. The first is, is the problem with evolution itself. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If there is no God, everything that we see today is the product of the evolutionary process. It's the product of natural selection. And ultimately, we have no meaning. We're just the end result of all of this stuff happening by chance. Believing that goodness is inherent in us from the beginning and through this evolutionary process is actually contradictory to the idea of evolution itself. We said this, evolution and the theory of natural selection are dependent upon the strong preying on the weak. That's how natural selection works, survival of the fittest. The strongest must take advantage of the weak, and creation does this where certain species will push each other to the brink of extinction, if not past the brink. That's how that works. If that's the case, then how can we determine whether something is fair or unfair, right or wrong? As Keller writes in his book, on what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be so horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? Those things must happen if the evolutionary process is true, if there is no God. The second problem we have with uh, the skeptical angle is that in order for us to judge between good and evil and judge whether something is evil, we must have a standard of goodness, uh, we can't tell if something is good or bad unless we know what good is and what good means. Uh, if you're a student, you, you would understand this. When I taught uh, in school, I'd give an assignment, and I would grade that assignment, and it would have an 85 or a 90 or a 75 on it. The students understood. That's out of 100. We get that. Like There's a standard that that is weighed against to know whether they did well on this assignment or not. 
Maybe you work a job where you have a sales quota. That's your, your goal. You have to try and meet that. And if you came in under that, you know you didn't do so well. And if you came above it, you did really well. Or you've got some rubric that helps you determine how well you did. We have to have a standard by which to, to know these things. Keller goes on to say in his book on this topic, if you are sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, then you're assuming the reality of some extra natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. In other words, he's saying simply acknowledging the presence of evil is, is saying that we have to know where good comes from. So you ask, well, can, can God exist if pain and suffering exist? What he's saying is we can't define something as pain or suffering or evil without knowing the goodness of God. That that actually points to the existence of God. The existence of evil and suffering don't mean that God doesn't exist or that he doesn't care or that he's uh, indifferent or anything like that. But this simply isn't a, a, a philosophical argument. This isn't just something that we can hash about in the academic or philosophical arena. This is a question that is far too personal for us because too many of us have experienced pain, whether it's personal or you see it on the global level. Maybe, maybe you see it through TV or through the news or through the internet and you see things that are happening all over the country and all over the world. And you wonder, even as a Christian, even with strong faith, where God is in these moments. You want to know why he hasn't stepped in to stop a shooter from a mass shooting or to stop a terrorist from, from igniting a bomb inside of a, of a packed coffee shop. You want to know why he hasn't stepped in when a cancer diagnosis was given. You want to know these things. You want an answer from a God who seems too quiet or too removed from the situation. And if that's you, I want to just let you know about two things, two reassurances here. Number one, God can handle it. He can handle you coming at him. He can handle you demanding an answer from him. Doesn't mean you'll get it, but he can handle it. But number two, you're not the first person and you're not alone in crying out to God in these moments. I think too many times we find ourselves like the family of Lazarus. Maybe you remember the story of Lazarus in the Bible, the friend of Jesus who was sick, who Jesus knew about was sick, but he didn't show up until four days after he was dead. And in the tomb, and he gets there and he approaches his sisters. And I think we cry out just like his sister Martha did. If you had just been here, God, if you had just been here, my friend would still be alive. If you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you had just been here, he wouldn't have gotten sick. I think we cry out in those moments. And I just want to give you the, the assurance, that's okay. It's okay to cry out to him. But before we question him, before we get into the idea of questioning God in these moments, can we pause for just a second? Because I want to reflect for just a minute on the nature of God. Because I think when we do that, it'll help us to understand more about the God that we want to lean into and rely on in those difficult times. I think that we, we need to stop and remember this. First, that evil was never a part of God's plan. Pain and suffering were never a part of his original design and creation. You go to Genesis 1, and, and he creates the world, and every time he creates something, it says he stops and looks, and, and what is it that he says? It's good. It's good. His creation was perfect until Genesis 3 rolled around. And the man that he created in his image, and the woman that he created in his image, decided that that, that creation wasn't good enough for them. 
And they rejected it, and they sinned. And, and sin entered the world, and it trickled down. And it infected all of us still to this day. And, and, and we see this because that followed with a curse from God on the man and the woman. That they would work hard, and they would toil, and they would endure pain. And Paul even wrote about this centuries later in Romans chapter 8 when he says, We know the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. We understand that. Is that a popular answer? No. Is it one that somebody wants to hear in the middle of suffering? No. But we look at this, and I think it's going to help us to understand a little bit more about who God is in this moment. So let's look at the nature of God. The first thing I want you to know about the nature of God is this. God is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. And you might say, well, if God's all-powerful, he has the power to stop these things from happening. Yeah, he does. He does. But in God's genius and in his mercy, God gave us the idea that we have what, what we call free will. We have the ability to make decisions on our own. We have the ability to not be robotic, mindless followers of him. And you might look at that and say, well, that still falls back on God. He gave us free will. And because of free will, people commit murders or they abuse somebody or they get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car. That's true. But because God gave us free will, he also gave us the ability to make the choice to love one another. He gave us that opportunity and that option to show compassion to one another, to care for one another, to know what that means. He gave us the option to follow him. Because God understands something. Forced love is no love at all. He gave us that particular choice. Free will from God, it's kind of like raising your kids. Uh, I've told you a lot about my kids. My, my kids are, my oldest is, is uh, nine, she'll be 10 here in a couple of months. I've got a seven-year-old, and then Titus will be four here in a couple of weeks. And right now, they have to follow our rules at home. Do they follow them all the time? <laughs> no. And you've heard enough stories of Titus, you know that's not true. But there's consequences when they don't follow what we tell them to do. One of these days. They will be out of our homes. And some of you, we just had graduations this week and last week. Your, your kids graduated high school and college. You're letting your kids go. You're letting them go into the world. And one of that, these days, that'll be me with my kids. And I hope at that point in time, what I have instilled in them and the rules they've had to follow now stick with them later. But once they move out of my home, they're no longer subject to my rules. You understand this, parents. I hope they make certain decisions, but if they don't, I can't send them to their rooms or ground them or any of that. I'm going to be turning 40 here in a couple of months, and there are times that I still call my dad or call my mom, and my wife calls her parents, and it's not asking their permission on things anymore. It's asking their advice. We may follow it. We may not, but we bear the consequences of that, those decisions we make, whatever the case. And I'm not talking about breaking the law type of consequences. I'm talking about, would this be a good investment or not? Would, should I do this to my house or my car? Or, or uh, I can choose to follow what they say or not. I get to live with those consequences. Free will works kind of the same way. We don't have to follow exactly what God tells us to do, but there are consequences to that if we don't. Some people wonder, well, if that's the case and people can make their own decisions, then why doesn't God just squash those people right before they do something that's going to hurt other people? Why doesn't God just smash that shooter before he pulls the trigger? Why doesn't God just, just, just crush that person before he abuses somebody? 
I think the answer is very simple, although it's very unfair. That's God's person too. That's God's creation too. That's somebody made in his image as well as as you and me. And just like you and me, God loves them just like you love all of your children. And no matter what your children do, no matter how far they run, you want to give them every chance to come back to you. Like, Like the story of the prodigal son. You're going to welcome them back with open arms when they do. And it may not be popular and it may not be a fair answer. But I think that's what Peter meant when he wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As long as there is breath in someone's lungs, God wants them to use that free will to come back to him. To come back to him in repentance. Here's my second thought when it comes to the nature of God. We need to understand God is all wise. He's all wise. And in God's infinite wisdom, he's all seeing and all knowing. When we're stuck in the middle of our pain, sometimes it's hard to see through that. And and that pain can last days or it can last months or even years. We can't see through all of that, but God can. God knows what's going to be on the other side of that waiting for you. And I know too, (laughs) when you're in the middle of something and somebody is saying, just, just keep your head up. It's going to be good on the other end. That's the last thing you want to hear. Because I've been there with my mom telling me, well, it's going to be okay. I'm like, I don't want you to say that to me. Just tell me that this is, just tell me this sucks. Just agree with me, please. And, and, but they, they don't because they can help you see through it. People can help you see through it. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul meant. When he quoted Isaiah 64, and he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can imagine this, if you will. This, this may be hard for some of you if you're a lifelong Kansan. But imagine you're on a hike out in the woods, and you come across a bear who's stuck in a trap. And you see that bear, and, and you know how to get the bear out of the trap. And so the first thing you think, well, I'm going to go up and I'm going to calm this bear down. So you go up and you start trying to calm the bear down. You're talking in a soothing voice. But he's a bear. He doesn't understand human language. And and so he doesn't calm down. So you think, okay, well, I need to just pump this bear full of tranquilizers and sedatives. And if once he's knocked out, then I'll be able to get him out of there. But the bear doesn't understand that. The bear thinks you're trying to hurt him worse, that you're a bigger threat to him. And you understand how bear traps work, that sometimes you've got to push something further down into the trap to loosen it so that it will come out. So you think, okay, well, the only thing I can do is just run into that bear and and shove that bear into that trap, and that'll loosen it up. The bear perceives that like you're attacking him. And he doesn't understand it, and he lashes out, and he tries to hurt everybody who's trying to help him. Folks, too often, we find ourselves in that trap. That's our pain and our suffering. And let me just tell you, God made us in his image. We share much more in common emotionally and intellectually with that bear than we do God. <laughs> I'm not saying God shoves you deeper into your pain to help get you out of it. I don't, I don't want you to think that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying sometimes God's trying to help us get out of it. And I don't think we realize it. I don't think we realize it because it's not the way that we think it should go. Those are the moments we've got to lean into a God we can't always see and we can't always feel and trust him even more in those times. Here's my third thought. We need to remember that God 
is all good. Again, I, I kind of alluded to this a minute ago. Just because something is bad or evil doesn't mean that good can't come from it. And again, when you're in the middle of pain and suffering, that is not what you want to hear. That's not what you want to hear. But parents, you're going to understand this. When you're teaching your kids how to walk or how to ride a bike, you know there is going to be pain and suffering involved with that. That, that as soon as you have to let their hands go at some point, and what are they going to do after the first two steps? They're going to fall. And they might bump their head. They're going to scuff their knees. They're going to hurt their elbows. When they learn to ride a bike, there's going to be a bike wreck at some point. That's just part of it. But through that and the endurance through that, they learn to walk. They learn to ride a bike. And, and if you've ever learned anything new, it, it comes with pain and difficulty sometimes. But you endure with that. I guess what Paul meant in Romans 5 when he says, We rejoice when we run into troubles and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. See, I think when we look at this, and we look at pain, and we look at the goodness of God, it helps us to understand who he is. But we also need to understand this too. We weren't made for this world. We endure pain and suffering here. But this world is a blip on our eternal radar. The few years that we live here, it's just a part of our eternity, a small part of our eternity that we have waiting for us with God. When I'm wrapped in my pain, when I'm hurting, when I see other people hurting on a global scale because of a senseless act of violence or, or a, a natural disaster or something, it helps me to step back and remember that God created me for a kingdom, not for this world. In his book, Making Sense of Suffering, Peter Kreeft said, the point of our lives in this world isn't comfort, but training and preparation for eternity. That brings me peace when I see things. Awful things. It brings me a, a, just a sliver of peace. When I read a story about a, a 10-year-old girl who was viciously attacked or sexually assaulted, it gives me a little bit of comfort, just a little bit of comfort when I hear about a small child with an incurable disease. It gives me just a sliver of, of hope when I read a story about a third-world country wiped out by a, a hurricane or an earthquake. Or when I hear a story about a young father that was taken too soon and leaves a young family behind to cope. Because this gets personal. Does that mean that I don't cry? Does that mean that I don't feel empathy or compassion or want to help others? Absolutely not. Because like you, I've experienced my share of, of pain and suffering. And I'm sure every single one of you could get up here and tell your story of pain and suffering of loss, of hurt, of those times you cried out to God, where were you? Why didn't you do something about this? I remember vividly 11 years ago today, some of you may know this, down in Joplin, Missouri, just 25 minutes from my hometown, when the largest, most deadly tornado, not largest, but deadliest tornado in recent history of our country wiped out the town of Joplin. Went right down 20th Street and took with it 161 lives. And it, it's <clears throat> kind of funny because Jennifer and I were actually here. <laughs> we 
We were in Kansas City at a baseball game watching the Cardinals and Royals over at the K. And about the fifth or sixth inning, I started getting text messages from family and friends back home and letting us know, well, there's a tornado. And you think, oh, okay, well, okay, well, it's a bad one. It's really bad. You know, it just progressively got worse. And we actually, uh, rather than going the normal way down uh, I-49, we had to come across to Highway 69 here and go down that way to avoid the destruction. But talking to my dad, my, my brother was an EMT. He got called to go up there and triage people. And talking to my dad, telling me, yeah, St. John's Hospital got wiped out, an eight-story hospital. You see there, gotten moved off its foundation eight inches. And, and then him telling me, yeah, all the businesses on Range Line and 20th are gone. And I thought, man, I was there last night. I was at this Academy Sports the night before. And I was in Home Depot that's right across the street from it the night before, staring down 20th Street, watching the sunset at about 9 o'clock at night, getting stuff from my lawn and just thinking, that's a beautiful sunset. And 20 hours later, it was flattened and people were killed inside. And that feeling started to sink in. And then I hear from my uncle that my cousins, Jennifer and Aaron, that a massive oak tree fell from their backyard and split their house in two and crushed their infant son's crib. And I was so grateful to know they weren't home. <laughs> they were well out of, out of harm's way. But 161 people weren't so lucky, including a bunch of young kids who just left their high school graduation. And then many of you may remember seeing about this on the news, but I remember the days that came after this, and we see this. You're like, God, where were you? Where were you at? Could you not, like, move this thing out into the country or something? I mean, this is a town of 70,000 people. And I remember the days that followed. Watching people come together, there weren't Democrats and Republicans anymore. There wasn't a racial divide anymore. There wasn't an economic divide anymore. It was everybody coming together to help one another and love and help everybody dig out and rebuild. And we've seen moments like this, whether they're local or global, on a more personal level. I remember my friend Kelly. She was born with Cystic fibrosis. I went to school with Kelly. We went to a, a good-sized grade school, and we had class together, first grade through fifth grade. She was the only person I had the same class with all five years. I had class with her all three years of middle school, all four years of high school. We were in honors classes together, AP classes together. Kelly never once let cystic fibrosis get in her way. She was one of those that was everybody's friend. Nobody had a negative thing to say about Kelly. A contagious laugh, she lit the room up. And I just remember her overcoming everything. Went to Pitt State, graduated with honors in nursing, got to live out her dream as a nurse. Got a double lung transplant in her early 20s. And it's like, man, she got a new lease on life. Watch out, you can't stop Kelly now. And then her body rejected it. And at about 26, she ended her fight. And God called her home. And I just remember this because so many people, so many people prayed, God, why Kelly? Why of all people her? 
I mean, she's like a jewel that you created, one of the best people you've ever created, and she, she loves you, and she serves your church, and she's here every week. Why her? Why could you not just snap your fingers and make this go away? And you cry out, why? Why do you allow this to happen? And I don't know why. And to be honest, it doesn't matter. It's not going to bring her back. You say, what comes out of it? What good could possibly come out of you taking somebody home at 26 years old? And I don't, I don't know. I know that in 26 years, she touched more people's lives than I will in a lifetime. I could preach to 10,000 people every week, and she's touched more people than I will in a lifetime. And I don't know what all came out of it. But I know this did. In the midst of their grief and in the midst of their, their loneliness and their mourning, a young guy and a young girl who knew each other became closer friends, and that friendship turned into a relationship, and that relationship turned into talking on a regular basis every day, even though they were half a world away. And several months later, that relationship sparked, and now 14 years later, I've got a wife and three kids because of Kelly. And we made the decision, our first child, boy or girl, was going to have her middle name. And then we've got Elsie Brooks carrying her name. And the pain we suffered and dealt with watching Kelly fight, I mean, for me, it wasn't anything compared to what my wife went through. She was closer to Kelly than I was, was in church with her every week. She had it out with God. God, why? You could have blinked. You could have blinked. And this would have gone away. And I know every single one of you can get up here and tell me a story in the exact same way. When you just said, God, if you would have just been here, my brother would still be alive. How does a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it means, but here's what I do know. Here is what I do know. It's not because he doesn't love us enough. It's not because he doesn't care about us. It's not because he is indifferent to our situation. It's not because that he can sit on a cloud far away and, and not deal with it. I'll deal with it later. It's not because of that. God cares about us so much and he loves us so much that he came and he took on our pain and our suffering and he joined in it with us. And we see this. We see these moments because we, we go back to that story of, of, of Jesus going to Bethany after Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and he's comforted Mary and Martha and then he goes to the tomb and we see the shortest verse in the Bible but one of the most powerful. He gets to the tomb and before he does anything it just says that Jesus wept. And in the Greek this word wept, it doesn't mean he just shed a couple tears and sobbed. No, he wailed. He cried, just like you and I do. And what's fascinating about this is Jesus knows that literally like 10 seconds from now, Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb. His friend is going to come back, and yet he still takes on our suffering and our pain. And he relates to us in that moment. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested and going to the cross, begging and pleading to God, crying out to God, please, step in. 
I don't want to do this. We see these moments happen. And in these moments, in these moments, we understand something about God that, that might change the way you look at him. We understand that he is not simply some remote deity safe on a cloud in heaven, not subject to our pain. In these moments, we see that he is the God who inhabits and shares in our pain and our suffering. And in these moments, I think we truly understand that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Why doesn't he stop it? I don't know. But I know he's there with you. I know he's there with you. And that he always will be there with you. And he's going to walk with you until you're no longer walking this earth. We were not created for this world. And whether it is a matter of days or weeks or years, our pain and our suffering is only temporary. And it's a blip on our radar. And he gave us encouragement to take with us in this, this note. Because on the way to Gethsemane, on the way to that pain and that suffering, he told his disciples these words in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. The good news of all this is that we can look and flip to the end of our Bibles and we know what's going to happen. Jennifer's little sister watched the new Top Gun movie yesterday. Her husband's in the Marines and they got special early viewing on the base. You know, only military personnel and spouses. Or I assume spouses. JC probably talked her way into it either way, but got to go watch it and she called yesterday and she's like, it is the best movie I've ever seen. Like, I mean, I could hear her on FaceTime from outside. She was bouncing off the walls. We're like, well, don't spoil it, you know. I'm going to go watch it every day for the rest of the week. Well, don't spoil it for us, you know. But when it comes to the Bible, we've got a big spoiler alert, and it's a good one. Because in the end of the Bible, on those last few pages, we see something that should help us in our pain and in our suffering. We see that there will come a day that it's all done away with that our pain and our suffering will cease. We see a time is going to come that God says, I've had enough. I've had enough of watching you suffer. I've had enough of watching you go through pain. And he's going to tell his son, Jesus, go get your church. And when he does, he'll usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And all of this madness will be wiped away. And in Revelation 21, John writes these words, looking into this vision. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He says it three times. And I love this last part. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And I know if you're in the midst of pain and suffering right now, that may, not be, that may not be the best thing to hear that one of these days it'll be better. But one of these days it will be better. And until that day comes, I don't know when it'll be. Until we breathe our last breath on this earth or until he comes and reestablishes his kingdom. I just want to leave you with one promise, with one reassurance it's the promise that God told Joshua in the Old Testament that was repeated by the author of Hebrews. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you.
If you're in the midst of pain right now, he is there with you. Why does he allow it? I don't know, but he's right there with you. And he always will be.